Several weeks ago, Dr. Barna, George Barna, the pollster, uh, and the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University released another of their American worldview inventories. This latest report, updated for 2021, reveals, and I quote, that the meaning of Christian, that label, that title, Christian, that the meaning of Christian in America today is far from monolithic with a number of diverse and often conflicting theological views, even beliefs that are thoroughly unbiblical, perspectives that are thoroughly unbiblical among those who embrace the label. Just one example of these thoroughly unbiblical perspectives concerns the Holy Spirit, also known in God's word as the Spirit of God, or just the Spirit. As one commentator summarized the findings of this report in regard to the Spirit, of self-identified Christians, those who said, I, am a, I consider myself to be a Christian, 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 58%. Surprisingly, those who identify as born-again Christians are even more likely, even more likely to hold that view. 62% deny that the Holy Spirit is a real living being. And half of theological born-again Christians, those are, the, those are the people who not only check off or describe themselves as born-again, but they have a, a few theological distinctives that set them apart from just those who claim to be born-again. So they actually have some beliefs that, that seem to square with that. Even half of those also deny that the Spirit is a being. For those who know and love the word of God, these numbers are extremely troubling. Why? Because they understand the importance of the spirit. And we recognize the importance of this topic because Jesus himself stressed its importance. We see this, for example, in our passage this morning, John chapter 7. Look with me at the closing section of John chapter 7. This is verses 37 through 52. This is what the apostle tells us. On the last day of the feast, remember which feast it was? The Feast of Booths, also called Tabernacles from the Old Testament. On the last day of the feast, this festival, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirits whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophets. Others said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, the officers who had been sent out to arrest him. They came to, and, and he, and they, the, the officers came and the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, brothers and sisters, if we start with the setting, as we've talked about in previous lessons, Jesus was in Jerusalem for, verse, seven, verse 2 of chapter 7, the Feast of Booths. Now, Deuteronomy 16 talks about this feast lasting for seven days. But when you look at Leviticus 23, uh, that chapter adds a special eighth day observance to the end of the seven days. So that means that it's unclear for us <laughs> when John talks here about the last day of the feast. It's unclear whether he's talking about the seventh day or the eighth day. Really, in the end, it doesn't matter for what we're looking at here. Either way, it doesn't affect the importance of what Jesus declares in verses 37 through 39. I think it's important to point out that even though we've heard Jesus responding to some in the crowd and to the Jewish leaders here in chapter 7, John has told us nothing about what Jesus was teaching the crowds. So we haven't gotten any content from Jesus specifically. We've only got some replies so far as he's responding to what the crowds and the leaders are saying. We have not heard what he's actually teaching the crowds. So verse 37, verse 37 is the first time that we're hearing from Jesus in this way. Jesus as teacher. So what I'd like to do is really zero in on verses 37 through 39 this morning. It's obvious the declaration contained in, in those verses is central in terms of why Jesus came to Jerusalem for the feasts. But it's also important to note that what we find in verses 40 through 52, the rest of the, the section that we looked at this morning, that's really just more of what we've talked about in our last lesson. Does that make sense? All we're seeing there, and we touched on a number of those verses last time. All we're seeing there is the uncertainty and the division that existed among the people regarding Jesus. Who is he? What's he doing? Where, where is he coming from? Where is he going? Contention, division among them. Contention among the leaders about what to do about him. 
Our last lesson, we talked uh, uh, quite a bit about this. So we're seeing, we, we've seen these same responses, the ones we see in 40 through 52. We've already seen these same responses throughout the chapter. And so if for this morning we really focus in on verses 37 through 39, it's hard to miss what John himself tells us about this proclamation by Jesus. Look again at verse 39. This is what John tells us about the proclamation. Now this he had said about the spirit. There's no confusion in terms of what Jesus is talking about, is there? John has already clarified it for us. This he said about the spirit. So on the last day of the feast, the great day, John tells us that Jesus stood up and cried out. Even though he came in a private way to Jerusalem, he did not go up publicly with his brothers like the beginning of the chapter says. He came up in a private way. He was not on a stealth mission like we talked about. This is even clearer, isn't it? Is he trying to get attention? Absolutely. He's standing up and he's crying out. To everyone who's gathered there in the temple courts. What is he crying out about? John tells us about the Spirit. In fact, I believe God has revealed three things in this passage about the Holy Spirit. Take a look here. First of all, the Spirit brings us the blessing of Christ. The Spirit brings us the blessing of Christ. Second, the Spirit channels through us the blessing. Of Christ. And third, the Spirit came to us because of the blessing of Christ. The Spirit came to us because of the blessing of Christ. So let me show you where these ideas, these three ideas, are coming from here in the text. First of all, the Spirit brings us the blessing of Christ. What is the cry of Jesus at the great climax of this festival? Verse 37, right? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine? Can you just picture Jesus standing up and crying out? How jarring that would have been to so many people who are looking to him, who see him, trying to understand what he's saying. But he's appealing to the people. He is pleading with the people, come, come to me and drink. Now, Jesus has talked about thirst before, hasn't he? We've seen this already in the Gospel of John. In the last chapter, he told his listeners this. Take a look. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Thirst. So he's already talked about that. And that was in connection with his blood, if you recall, right? The picture of drinking even his blood was just a symbol of receiving by faith The blood he shed on the cross for us. Believing in faith on that blood. Now, two chapters before that, in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, I'm sure you recall and thought of this when we talked about this idea of come, come all who are thirsty and drink, come to me and drink. You probably remember this famous conversation with that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman next to that well in Samaria. This is what he said, how the conversation went. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God 
and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, this well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The similarities, of course, to our present passage shouldn't be hard to spot. In both passages, Jesus is speaking to spiritually thirsty people about drink that only he can give them. In both passages, something called living water is mentioned by Jesus. And in both passages, the living water is talked about as at work inside or coming out from inside someone. Do you see that? So what is this living water? Well, remember verse 39. John actually tells us clearly, explicitly what Jesus is talking about. Now this he said about the spirit. So the living water that Jesus offered the Samaritan woman is the same water he offered the spiritually thirsty festival goers in John chapter 7. That spiritual water is in fact the Holy Spirit of God. The gift of the spirit would not be surprising to those in the early church especially those familiar with the gospel accounts. Think about Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Take a look. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, says Jesus, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the eternal life, Jesus is offering actually comes to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the wire transfer into our account, <laughs> right? Of the righteousness of Christ. He has paid the debt. The Holy Spirit brings us that. But why describe the Spirit here in John 7 as water for the thirsty? Why is he using this language? Well, remember why the Jewish people celebrated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was to remind them of how their ancestors had lived in tents, tabernacles, booths, when they wandered in the desert all those years after their exodus from Egypt. And you'll recall how God provided for them. How would God provide for them? In the middle of a barren desert in that wilderness, he brought, number one, bread from heaven, as we talked about in the last chapter, John chapter 6. And so we move on in this chapter to talk about how he brought them water, even water from a rock. God provided miraculous water to his people to provide for their needs. Right? That's what we know from the Old Testament. And isn't it interesting to confirm this connection? We know the Apostle Paul, in fact, connects 
this miraculous desert water with Jesus. Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He tells us how those Hebrews in the wilderness all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Wow. I think what Paul is saying here echoes what Jesus is saying in John 7. If you want God's provision of true spiritual heavenly water, then come to Jesus. He has been and is fullness of life for all people, right? He was that fullness of life for the people that wandered in the desert, God the Son, through the work of God the Spirit. And now God the Son, the Word become flesh in the person of Jesus, is offering this same thing there at the, the feast of booths as they thought about that miraculous water. They even had rituals where they would take water and they would pour it out each day, water and oil before the altar, symbolic of God's provision of water. And so Jesus is grabbing their attention as they're thinking about some of these things and saying, don't you see that I, I alone can offer you true spiritual drink. Just like he told those in the last chapter. You want heavenly bread? You want manna? The true bread that comes down from heaven is me. That's what he told them. And so he's calling them to himself here in a wonderful way. Wonderfully, this life comes through the spirit as we talked about. But notice this. Notice that Jesus goes on to describe, number two, the spiritual, that, sorry, the spirit channels through us the blessing of Christ. If we've just talked about how the spirit brings us the blessing of Christ, he deposits that in us. We also learn that the spirit then channels through us the blessing of Christ. What did Jesus mean when he said, come to me in verse 37? Did he mean move physically closer to me? Come here in my personal space? <laughs> no, no. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me. That's what he meant. He didn't mean move physically closer. He, he said move spiritually towards me. That is whoever comes in faith. Whoever is looking to me with a trusting heart. Brothers and sisters, friends. This morning, will you cry out to him in prayer just as he cried out to the lost in John chapter 7, verse 37? He wants you to cry out to him in prayer. That is to come to him in faith, to come with faith-filled prayers, to come with your thirst, to come and let Christ satisfy you. For only he can. If you will come to him, if you have, then notice the promise given by Jesus. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, to be clear, Jesus, although it sounds like it, he's not quoting one specific Old Testament verse here. He's really just saying something like, as the Old Testament teaches us, 
That's what he's saying. As the Old Testament teaches. What kinds of verses might Jesus have in mind here when he, he quotes this, when he gives this, makes this point? Well, I think he actually has a number of verses from the prophet Isaiah. He has a number of verses in mind from the prophet Isaiah, along with others, but I think he's focused on these. First of all, take a look at these verses. First, his own cry echoes what Yahweh declared to the people in Isaiah 55 verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You see, that's what the God of Israel proclaimed. And Jesus is making the same proclamation. He's giving the same invitation, isn't he? So that's Isaiah 55, 1. Now, this may be connected to a promise made earlier in the second half of the book in Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, says God. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. So God's going to pour water on the thirsty. What does that mean? It means he's going to pour his spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. What effect will this outpouring of the spirit have? Look at chapter 58 of the verse here, the quote from chapter 58. Chapter 58, Isaiah 58 is a chapter well known for its descriptions of true righteousness and true compassion and true justice. Just read the opening verses of that chapter. The prophet comforts his reader with these words. And Yahweh will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You see, that's God's word to his people saying, this is what you will be like. So the call of Jesus here in John 7 is not simply a call to drink and be satisfied. It's also a call to be filled and overflow. That as you are filled with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit and the blessings He brings will flow out from you into the lives of others. Disciple, do you want to be a blessing in that way to others? Do you want the Holy Spirit to flow out through you like a spring of water? As God has poured into your life. Does verse 38 describe you? Does it describe you? Out of your heart flow rivers of living water. Could that be said about you? Right? Can that be said about me? Can it be said about us? That from our heart flow these rivers of living water. If not, why not? You see, we have things to talk about with God, don't we? We have things to work through if we are, if we are stifled, if, 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 if this is dammed up in us in some way, that water is restricted in some way. But what a prayer to pray. <laughs> what a prayer to pray God has given us here. Father, 
Allow the living water of the Holy Spirit to flow out of my heart today that I might bless others with the blessing of Christ. What a prayer to pray each morning. Father, let that living water from the Holy Spirit flow out of my heart today. Now, speaking of that blessing, we also read here that number three, the Spirit came to us because of the blessing of Christ. The Spirit came to us because of the blessing of Christ. Look again at John's commentary on Jesus' invitation and this living water in verse 39. Now this he said about the spirits, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If we were to continue reading through John's gospel from verse from chapter seven here and onward, we would discover, especially in chapters 14, 15 and 16, we would discover a whole lot more about the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And we would hear amazing verses, verses that you and I are both familiar with uh, about the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the spirit. But notice the two final ideas John conveys to us in verse 39. Look at verse 39 again. We're reading there, we're seeing there that number one, the original listeners of Jesus there in the temple courts, those who had believed, had not yet received the Holy Spirit, but they would. So they had not yet received the Spirit, but they would. And number two, The spirit was not yet given to God's people in this way because Jesus had not yet been crucified and raised to life. Notice that order. That order is so important. Why is it so important? Because it reminds us that we cannot be temples of God, the Holy Spirit, unless we are first cleansed and consecrated by God the Son. We've got to keep those two together. This is a gospel-centered statement. It's the Holy Spirit. This topic is gospel-centered. We can't say along with that 58, those 58%, that 62%, those 50%, the Holy Spirit is not real, not a real living being. He's just a symbol. Hogwash, that's wrong. That's a lie. You see, this is a gospel issue. Christ died and rose again in order that the spirit might come. As Jesus said, it is better for me to go away that the spirit would come to you. The forgiveness that Jesus made possible when he paid our debt on the cross, not only restored us to God the Father, but did so through the spirits. As Paul told the Thessalonian disciples, take a look. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Isn't that interesting? The setting apart of the spirit actually comes before belief in the truth (laughs) in that statement. You would think it would be belief in the truth. And then receiving the Holy Spirit. But in fact, the sanctifying work of the Spirit begins as he opens our hearts to see Christ in truth. 
as he sets us free from our blindness and spiritual death to be able to actually receive the gift of God. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. Sadly, as we just talked about, many confessed Christians today believe the Holy Spirit, and I quote, is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. These are confessed, professed Christians. These are people who claim to be Christians. As we've talked about this morning, this is, of course, false. This is not true. The spirit is a very real being, not according to me, according to Jesus Christ, according to the word of God. The spirit of God is, in fact, God. No, John 7 does not go into depth about the spirit, the passage that we looked at this morning. But this passage is a beautiful reminder of a much larger and incredibly precious collection of verses. Many, many verses that describe who the spirit is and why he is so important. I wish we had time to look at all of them from from the scripture, from the Bible this morning. We don't. But this passage this morning opens a door for us to connect with those, to see, to understand the importance of the Holy Spirit. What have we learned this morning? We've learned three things. First, the Spirit brings us the blessing of Christ. That's the blessing of new life. Second, the Spirit channels through us the blessing of Christ. That's the fruit of that new life. And third, the spirit came to us because of the blessing of Christ. How did he bless us? Because of his through his death and his and the new life that he enjoyed because of his resurrection from the dead. How should we respond this morning? How should you respond to these amazing truths? First, let me suggest That you simply give thanks to God for his Holy Spirit. Do that right now. Stop what you're doing. Everybody stop what you're doing. And take a few seconds and give thanks to God for the gift of the Spirit. Second, how how should you respond? Acknowledge that new life to you and through you never comes from within you, but from outside of you, from the Spirit. It's not something that you're generating. It's not something coming up from the inside of you because you're such a great person. Mm -mm. New life to you and through you always comes from outside of you. Through the Holy Spirit. Would you take just a minute and also acknowledge that before God? Acknowledge that fact. Third, pray. You don't need to do that now, but pray and ask God. In light of our passage this morning, ask God to make you a full and overflowing Christian. 
It's not enough just to be full. Because then that fullness is false. True fullness in Christ through the Holy Spirit is overflowing fullness. Ask God. Make that part of your regular prayer. God, help me to be both a full and overflowing Christian. Help me not just to be satisfied to find my problems solved and my fears relieved. Help me not just to enjoy and seek that experience of your fullness, but to know and embrace the fact that your fullness is overflowing. It's an overflowing fullness. And if we don't see it overflowing in some way, there's a problem. We're not as full as we think that we are. Ask God to make you a full and overflowing Christian. Remember that as we bring to Jesus our spiritual thirst, he doesn't simply want to fill us. He wants to fill us to overflowing that other people would be blessed through us. Blessed by my love. Blessed by my joy, my peace, my patience, my kindness, my goodness, my faithfulness, my gentleness, my self-control. No. Why? Because those That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. That is the fruit of the Spirit in me, through me, to others. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, the Spirit of God changes us. Do you believe that? He does. He changes us. He actually transforms a person. Now, one subtle, fun reminder of that, that I hope is an encouragement to you. One subtle, simple reminder of that fact that the Spirit of God changes people is found here in verses 50 and 51 of John chapter 7. Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to Jesus, as these verses indicate, they remind us he was the one who came to Jesus back in chapter 3. This Nicodemus who came to Jesus first under the cover of darkness. At night. He reappears here in these verses. Not only is it daytime. As Nicodemus is introduced and speaking. But Nicodemus is in fact willing to stand up for Jesus. At least in a generic way. He's willing to to stand up and speak the truth in regard to Jesus, in in regard to fair due process that Jesus is deserving of as all people deserve. Could this little note by the Apostle John be an evidence of change in Nicodemus? Of spirit inspired change in his life? Of course, the more important question this morning is what kind of change is the spirit inspiring in you? What kind of change is the spirit inspiring in you and through you? How does it all begin, brother, sister? How does it all begin? Friend, it begins with the cry of Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? That invitation? Listen to it again this morning. If anyone thirsts, let him, let her come to me 
and drink. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask God. Let's acknowledge the things that we've talked about. And let's ask God to do that work through in us and through us to be a blessing to others. Not by our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that with sincerity along with me this morning.